0: Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but From the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, the focus is going to move From the training and the instructions of the disciples in chapter 18 to renewed hostility towards Jesus by the religious leaders. Jesus is going to leave the Galilee and he's going to head south for Judea. He's going to cross the Jordan and go into an area that in antiquity was known as Perea. Now the Jewish leaders will confront Jesus again this time on the subject of the laws concerning divorce the subjects of marriage and divorce as you can imagine created quite a stir not only in the time of Moses but also in the time of Jesus and even today Jesus is going to point out that the religious leaders view on the subject didn't reflect, in particular, the word of God, the heart of God, or the will of God. We live in a culture that has, for the most part, abandoned a biblical view of marriage politicians and government leaders and the popular culture don't necessarily embrace what you and I would call the sanctity of marriage and if that weren't difficult enough this erosion of a biblical view of marriage has made its way into the church. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the subject of marriage and divorce. My goal isn't to cover everything that the Bible says about this most important subject, but to at least consider what Jesus has to say in this passage so that we could begin to adopt not just simply what the Bible says about marriage, but that our hearts would begin to reflect the character of God and the word of God concerning this subject. And so it begins with the debate concerning divorce. Look at verse one. It says, now it came to pass, that is after chapter 18, when he had finished these sayings that he departed from the Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. What you may not know or what you may not understand in the chronology of the unfolding ministry of Jesus, he has about six months to live. In the next six months, all of the things that are revealed in chapter 19, 20, as we make our way through the gospel of Matthew, is going to unfold. It says, And great multitudes followed him. And he healed them there in verse 2. Mark's gospel reminds us in chapter 10, verse 1, and the people gathered to him. And, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Note in our passage, he departs from the Galilee. He goes into the region called Perea. Multitudes follow him in verse 2, and he heals them. Matthew's gospel points out the healing that takes place at this time. Mark's gospel points out the teaching that takes place at that time. What you may not remember is that this is the area where John the Baptist conducted his ministry. Near the Jordan, in Perea, in the wilderness. This is the place where John the Baptist is arrested, imprisoned. And eventually killed. He's executed for his very public proclamations. About the issue of marriage. And the issue of divorce. Is it possible. That Christians could face persecution again. For simply believing what the Bible says about marriage. For simply Believing what the Bible says concerning its origin, its meaning, its value. I'm going to suggest to you that doing what's right will begin with believing what's right. Imagine the religious leaders continue to witness Jesus' healing in Matthew's gospel. They're hearing his teaching in Mark's gospel. Jesus is healing the sick. He is ministering to hurting people and making them whole. But the religious leaders aren't interested in believing in Jesus. They're not even interested in trusting Jesus. They're interested in discrediting Jesus. They would rather debate Jesus than celebrate What Jesus is doing. And so in verse three, it says, the Pharisees also came to him. Note what it says testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? The Lord's enemies won't leave him alone. And again, the question, an important question, a legitimate question. The reason why they're asking the question, they're not motivated by a sincere desire to know God's heart, to know God's will, to know God's desire. And so right from the start, we should place ourselves not in the position of the Pharisee who's trying to trick Jesus in order to antagonize and alienate an already difficult situation, but rather to glean from him his heart on the matter. Remember, they're asking not because they want to know. They want to generate conflict. They want to reduce Jesus' popularity among the people. And even in our discussion and instruction, some of you may be tempted to say, I don't believe what the Bible says about marriage, and I don't believe what Jesus says about marriage. Remember in the ancient world, marriage and divorce, just like now, were hot topics. It's common knowledge that there were two rabbis who interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses one through four in a profoundly different ways. This is the passage under discussion which the religious leaders have approached Jesus concerning. And it's probably a good idea before we continue our study if you have a Bible to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and read with me verses one through four. The passage reads, when a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. There were two popular schools and two popular rabbis who made comment and drew conclusions based on that passage of Scripture. One was named Rabbi Hillel, who took the passage to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any cause whatsoever. While the followers of a rabbi named Shammai suggested that the word uncleanness in the passage must of necessity mean sexual infidelity or adultery the answer that Jesus provides will go past the bitter debate. It will go beyond, not just simply the rabbi's debate, or even what has been said by Moses, Jesus is going to revisit God's original intent and plan and design for marriage. It seems awful that I should have to remind you about the statistics of divorce. They're particularly gruesome. The United States Census gave the following information in the past several decades. In 1920, on average in America, one in every seven marriages ended in divorce. In 1940, it was one in six. In 1960, it was one in four. Beginning in 1977, it climbed to one in three. According to a number of sources, the divorce rate peaked in the 1980s, climbing as high as one out of every two marriages ending in divorce, with some sources suggesting that the divorce rate has now returned to about one in three marriages. Some scholars, statisticians, sociologists are suggesting that the divorce rate is declining. Not because people have a higher view of marriage or a more liberal view of divorce. It's because that there's a whole generation of millennials who have decided that it's not worth getting married at all. Some are just simply dismissing the notion on its face. But statistics can cause us to distance ourselves from the pain and the trauma and the horror of failed marriages. It's one thing to talk about one in three. And it's another thing to look inside of your own heart and your own family, and your own circumstances, and the people that you love, and the people that you care about, and all of the pain and trauma and problems that go that is associated with failed relationships and failed marriages. So Jesus will shift the discussion He is going to answer their question, but before he answers their question, he has to deal with the divine intention concerning marriage in verses 4 through 6. And look what he says. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? In that single sentence, it affirms so many things Even though the context and the point of the passage isn't just simply to turn back to your Bible and read what the Bible has to say, although that is part of the point. Jesus, right from the start, affirms several things. Number one, that Moses wrote the the, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's going to affirm that he believes what Moses wrote about God about God's plan, about God's creation, about creating a man and a woman. There's several things that are going to unfold right before our eyes. Jesus says, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In verse 6, so then they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. In that single statement, Jesus is going to answer so many questions. Where did marriage begin? It began in the Garden of Eden. Jesus begins his answer by saying, again, have you not read? Presupposing that the Pharisees are certainly going to be aware of Moses' writing and the origin of marriage. Jesus references both the, the Bible as a whole, in Genesis in particular. The institution of marriage finds its origin in God Himself, it predates government. It predates civilization. It predates even the creation, if you will, of human beings. In what sense? God creates human beings, note what Jesus brings to our attention, male and female. Again, you would think that this isn't going to be such a dramatic statement until centuries later. And we discover that God created human beings, male and female. He doesn't create them with a spectrum. He doesn't create them male who think they're female or female who think they're male. There isn't a broad spectrum of gender according to the Bible. We are willing to concede that there is a broad spectrum of hurt and brokenness in a culture And in a society that has disconnected itself from what the Bible says. When Jesus says God created human beings male and female. He reveals to us that in his creation there is a divine intent. For this reason Jesus says quoting Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. A man shall Leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage was intended to be heterosexual, male and female. It was intended to be intimate, permanent, monogamous. Marriage is a committed partnership between a man. And a woman. And so Jesus appeals to God's word to determine God's wisdom, design, intent, and will. Remember, the Pharisees want to trap Jesus. In what way? They're hoping that no matter what Jesus says, he's going to antagonize and alienate a group. If he sides with Shemai he's going to antagonize those who have embraced the school of Hillel. If he embraces Hillel, then he's going to antagonize the school of Shammai. But Jesus' interest isn't in isolating, antagonizing, or otherwise creating an undue division. One Bible writer says, they were serving their own desires. Not seeking to know his view of God's will based on God's word. As we examine the divorce issue, our motives must be to do God's will, not to serve our own desires, unquote. And I think that this is a key concept. As we look at what the passage is saying, as we hear the voices speak to us, From the popular culture. And even the voices that speak to us within the church. That we should draw our attention again to what the Bible says. And to what Jesus says. Again the Pharisees focus is on divorce. And the Lord Jesus will bring focus to God's plan to God's design, to God's purpose for marriage. And we can't overlook the answer that he gives. Before we can speak about divorce, we have to be prepared to speak about marriage, about the plan for marriage, about the design for marriage, about the sanctity of marriage. Before we can even consider the qualifications or conditions that would allow for divorce, we have to... Begin our discussion with an examination of God's purposes for marriage. And a quick, quick overview of the Bible will give us at least four reasons or purposes for marriage. I'm sure that there are many more, but just so that you will know, I want to draw your attention to at least four unequivocal things. Number one, Marriage was in part to perpetuate the race. We know that from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply. Number two, personal companionship and enjoyment. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God understood that human beings shouldn't be alone. He creates Adam. And after creating Adam, you'll remember in the course of the discussion that takes place in chapter 2 that Adam's first job is to name the animals. And I'm going to suggest to you that he doesn't just give them easy names. A thing that looks like a cat with with spots. He, He gives specific names to all of the animals In the animal kingdom, he's giving them names. And again, as he goes through this examination of God's creation, it's discovered that there isn't an animal that's suitable for companionship for him. And you know what the Bible says, how God caused a sleep to fall upon Adam. What you may not have asked is, why did he do that? And I'm going to suggest to you it's because he wasn't looking for Adam's input on what Eve is going to be like. He puts him under anesthesia, he removes the rib. He's not interested in Adam saying, no, I need her a little bit taller. No, I need her a little bit shorter. No, I, I need those eyes to be a little bit brighter. No, it's, I need wild woman hair, that's what I need. He creates the woman according to his own perfect plans and purposes. And number three, to prevent sexual immorality, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And because marriage exists not to perpetuate sexual immorality, but to prevent sexual immorality, then it behooves us to think about that. And finally, and not least importantly, to illustrate Christ. And his church. And so marriage, to perpetuate the the race, personal companionship and enjoyment, prevent sexual immorality, illustrate Jesus. The Lord, the Lord clearly prefers this vision of marriage as a loving, stable, strong, permanent household. And the Lord Jesus is going to remind the Pharisees that God's design for marriage... Includes within the text at least these three elements. Number one, look what it says. The man leaves his parents in a public act and then promises himself to his wife. Number two, the man and the woman enter into a covenant. This means a divine agreement. Established by both willfully. I'm going to suggest to you that when you enter into a covenant, you take responsibility for each other, for each other's welfare. This becomes the priority in life. It is mental, it is emotional, it is physical, it is spiritual, it contains all of those elements. And we have to include that this priority becomes the central relationship that places the partner in a position of priority. This, of course, excluding the relationship of God. Adam is created for God, not for Eve. But clearly, the priority of relationship becomes the partner. Human beings' primary loyalty lies with their creator and secondarily with their partner. And this subordinates mothers, fathers, children. As I've been fond of saying throughout our studies, as we've looked at this issue, Each and every household has to come to grips and ask themselves this important question. Am I going to have a child-centered home or am I going to have a Christ-centered home? I'm not even talking about a father-centered home or a mother-centered home. I'm talking about a Christ-centered home. And so the man leaves his parents publicly and acknowledges his promise to the wife. It is a covenant. And number three, the two become... One, united, one flesh. Again, speaking of permanence, intimacy, reserved only for the marital relationship. And clearly, this is a reference to a sexual union. So what can we glean from these simple elements? Again, in brief, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a committed partnership between one man and one woman. The union is intimate, permanent. God creates Adam for himself. God creates Eve for Adam and himself. God chooses to make Eve, not from the dust, but rather from the man's flesh and bone. And so even though we know from the Bible, Adam's first statements, we understand, seem to be some sort of a conversation concerning the naming of the animals, we don't actually hear his voice in the text until Genesis chapter 2 where the first recorded words of Adam after he's formed from the ground and after he is placed in the garden, the first words from Adam's lips are these in verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's the first recorded words of Adam. There's a spiritual element. There's a physical element. There's a mystical element. God's going to use this physical, and spiritual union as a symbol for Christ's relationship to the church when Paul speaks about it in the book of Ephesians. So God, think about this, takes the marriage covenant seriously. And so marriage isn't a good idea for anyone who ignores what the Bible says, or who refuses the Bible's assessment of marriage. The goal of marriage is not happiness. It's not even convenience. Or it's certainly not sexual expression. Although marriage should include happiness and convenience. The goal of marriage is unity. And since the goal of marriage is unity, and since unity is based on trust and respect and affection, then the goal of marriage and its goals have to be in reference to those things. It is permanent, intimate. And again, the goal of marriage isn't simply friendship or companionship, although it should include that as well. Husbands have a role to play and wives have a role to play. But whatever the God-given tasks are, Remember that the role that the man plays and the role that the woman plays it's supposed to reflect the honor of God, the will of God, the glory of God. Marriage is a gift from God. And at the first marriage God was the first priest. He was the first witness. He was the first guest. God creates Adam and Eve as a perfect complement to one another. And the Bible declares that they share an equal honor, dignity, and worth. And so the decree of Moses has to be addressed. Look what it says. It says, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Remember the Pharisees consider that the proof text, the seminal text, the most important text is Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses one through four when you're dealing with this issue of marriage and divorce. The Pharisees appeared to be thinking about the subject of marriage and divorce not from God's plan and not from God's purpose and, and not from God's design. They seemed to be thinking about the subject more from a cultural perspective and more from a legal perspective. Marriage and divorce to them were transactions. It's the cost to do business like buying a home or selling a property. I'm going to suggest to you right from the start that Jesus condemns this attitude. God's intention isn't to figure out a way to abandon the relationship. It's to retain the relationship. His intention is unity. So what God intends to keep united should not be separated. And so the Pharisees would have interpreted that statement of Jesus, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees would have thought, are you telling us, Jesus, that Moses is breaking the heart of God and the will of God and the plan of God? Like so many people, the Pharisees are trying to pit Moses against Jesus or the law against Jesus. And so Jesus is going to have to correct this issue. Was Jesus saying that Moses' law is contrary to God's commands? And so listen carefully. In verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now again, from a scholastic standpoint, it is interesting to note that Jesus believes that Moses writes the first five books of the, of the Bible and that he writes them in its entirety. That he writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But having said that, when he, he makes this point, the Lord, requ- the Lord requires the man to give his wife a certificate of divorce to protect the woman. You see, what you may not understand in the culture and the society of the wilderness wanderings during the time of Moses, the only person who could initiate a divorce was the husband. And the husband didn't have to go to law, he didn't have to go to court, he didn't have to have witnesses. Just like in the Arab culture in antiquity, the way that a husband would get rid of a a wife if he just simply said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. After the third statement, you're divorced. And the only thing that the man had to do was just simply turn her out. The woman could not initiate the divorce. Under any circumstance, typically, there were some exceptions in the Jewish culture where a woman would have to get witnesses and then she would have to go to court. It was an extremely difficult and painful process. It was clearly different in the Roman culture. And so again, the Lord requires the man to give his wife a certificate of divorce to protect the woman. It isn't to ensure the protection of the man in what sense. It was supposed to make it more difficult for the man to divorce his wife in the heat of anger. It was also to provide proof that she was an unwilling victim of her husband's rebellion and disobedience and also to give her the lawful Cultural and social opportunity to go on with her life. So, why did God permit divorce? Jesus gives the answer because of the hardness of your hearts. God permits Moses to write this accommodation. God permits you divorce your wives. What What causes this hardness of heart? The answer, in part, is found in the passage which they were appealing to in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In that culture and society, the Pharisees are appealing to the text in order to make their point. But again, in the culture and society, certain texts have weight and certain texts have more weight. Just like in modern jurisprudence, when a lawyer wants to make his or her point, the lawyer is going to cite precedents. They're going to cite law. There's certain law that has weight and then there's certain law that has a greater weight. Does the book of Deuteronomy have weight? Yes. Does the book of Genesis have greater weight? In one sense, it does. God has given a revelation at the beginning. In other words, even in that culture and society, you looked at the intent and you looked at the design. So what caused the hardness of heart? Again, the answer is found in part in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which we've already read. A man marries a woman. He's displeased with her. He finds something unclean in her. In the, in the first century of, of Jesus' time, this could include anything. She burnt the falafel. She put too much salt on my food. She just turned 60. I'm going to trade her in for two 30-year-olds. You might laugh, and you might think it treacherous. Did the rabbis, even at that time, give a man permission to divorce his wife if he simply found another woman more attractive? The answer is yes. Could he divorce her if she was unable to bear a child? Yes. The controversy centered around the words some indecent thing or some unclean thing. And so the big question was, Can a man divorce his wife for any and all reasons? There was another issue. In the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon that a father gave a dowry or a bride price. It could be money, it could be land, it could be slaves, it could be properties, it could be resources. And the dowry remained in the possession of the woman throughout the course of the marriage. If the husband divorced the woman for any reason other than sexual infidelity, the dowry remained with the woman and was returned to the woman. And so you can imagine this would sometimes cause False accusations. Did actual infidelity take place? Clearly, times haven't changed. Certainly. What was the punishment, according to the law of Moses, for marital infidelity? Death by stoning. But do you know how many people were actually killed by stoning because of marital infidelity? It was very, very... Very rare. And so divorce became a merciful alternative to killing them. And so now you even begin to understand in our own culture and society where a woman will say, I don't believe in divorce, but if you do this, I will kill you. Okay, let me understand this. You don't don't believe in divorce, but you do believe in murder as a as a way to terminate the marriage under the right circumstance. We laugh, but you get it. For many people, it's truly difficult to comprehend that. In Deuteronomy 24.1, some in uncleanness literally reads a matter of nakedness. And so one of the issues this brings up was the divorce law, was it a temporary law? Or a permanent law? Did it apply only to the Jews, or does it provide for us principles everywhere, every time, in every culture, in every society? We know that human beings are by nature and by choice sinful, and that even God's choicest servants didn't always live up to the biblical ideal of marriage. Moses established the laws not to hurt the victims but to protect the victims. And so, like I said, in Jewish law, only the husband could initiate and carry out the divorce. And because of Moses' law, a woman wasn't simply forced out. She was allowed a certificate so that she could reclaim her dowry and so that she could be eligible to remarry. And so in one sense, the law of Moses afforded women, maybe, at least in that culture and society, some level of support and rights and a legal redress. So the law of Moses gave at least some protection to the abuses of divorce. And the hardness of heart lies in the fact that some people are insensitive, and the hardness refers to a stubborn, willful disregard for the plan of marriage, for the purpose of marriage, and for the design of marriage. When all is said and done, divorce was permitted, but not commanded, not even commended. And that's the point that Jesus is making. It's not only not commanded, it is permitted, it's not commended, It is one of those horrible and terrible situations because of humanity's refusal to honor God and obey him. And there were direct implications for the king's disciples. It says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Scholars agree that the words sexual immorality applies to both the husband and the wife. Mark adds, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery in Mark chapter 10, verse 12. The Lord makes it clear that divorce was permitted on the grounds of sexual infidelity. Paul writes that it's a sin against the body in 1 Corinthians chapter six. The word sexual immorality, of course, includes any kind of misconduct. That involves infidelity. I don't have time to give all of the circumstances, but I do want to just remind you quickly that there were three kinds of marriages in the Bible. There was a marriage between an unbeliever and an unbeliever. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Just like today. Do unbelievers still marry unbelievers? They do. The second kind of marriage was between a believer and an unbeliever. Oh, by the way, does that still exist? The third kind of marriage was between a believer and a believer. Does that still exist? That's right. Believers who are married to believers have all of the resources available to believers. When an unbeliever is married to a believer, is it possible that the unbeliever says, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for church and Jesus and Bible. I didn't sign up for this Jesus business. When we got married, you were fun. And now you're not fun anymore. And I'm leaving you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, if the unbeliever depart, let him go because God hasn't called you to bondage, but to peace. By the way, if an unbeliever marries an unbeliever and they get divorced and then they marry somebody else and then they get divorced and then they marry somebody else and they get divorced and then they marry somebody else and and they get divorced and they marry somebody else and they die, where do they go? To hell. Not because they got married and divorced, they go to hell because they don't have a right relationship with God and Christ. It may come as a shock and a surprise to you. People go to heaven because they have a right relationship with Jesus. And people go to hell because they don't. People don't go to heaven because they stay married. And people don't go to hell because they got a divorce. Divorce creates a kind of killing fields in relationship. Remember, when Jesus says, he uses the expression, whoever marries her who is divorced, the implication is that it's divorced for reasons other than marital infidelity. Adultery doesn't dissolve the marriage. Divorce dissolves the marriage. So what is the answer that Jesus gives to the religious leaders who are looking to trap Jesus? His answer is, I believe the Bible. I believe what the Bible says about marriage. He says, I believe what the Bible says about God's original intent, and God's original design, and God's original heart, and God's original purposes. God created marriage to be sacred, permanent, intimate, dissolved only by death. Marriage creates a new identity. Divorce dissolves that identity. In brief, I've listed some principles of marriage. I'm going to just list them very briefly. These are going to be on our webpage and online. Just in the very few minutes I have left, I just want to remind you of something else. Did you know that in the book of Jeremiah, God got a divorce? He got a divorce. He says to the wicked northern kingdom, because of your perpetual commitment to infidelity and immorality, I'm getting a divorce. You know what that means? It must mean that divorce isn't always a sin. Is God capable of sinning? No. Did God get a divorce? Yes. So how are we to think about that? I'm going to suggest to you that that divorce is always a consequence of sin. But it isn't always a sin. It's always the consequences of, of sin, but it's not always a sin. In what sense? The Bible says that the soul that sins, it shall surely die. In other words, the consequences of sin is death. And so, here's what we learn. Principles, just very quickly. I'm going to read them quickly. Number one. Marriage is a divinely ordained institution. Number two, marriage is the first and most fundamental institution. Number three, marriage is a covenant and binding. Number four, marriage is a place for true intimacy. Number five, marriage is a covenant of companionship. Number six, marriage is to conform to the model of Christ and his church. Divorce, quickly. Number one, divorce always stems from hard-heartedness, sin. Sin. Number two, divorce is not necessarily sinful, but is always the result of sin. Number three, divorce always breaks a marriage. And let me be clear about that for those of you who believe that divorce doesn't break a marriage. If you say, we got a divorce, but I'm still married in my heart. No, marriage isn't something that's just simply formed in your heart based on feelings. A legal marriage forms a marriage and a legal divorce terminates the marriage. I'll have more about that later. Number three, or number four, divorce is never necessary among believers. Divorce is never necessary among believers. If the believer will do exactly what the Bible says, there's the possibility of forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. Number five, divorce is legitimate on the grounds of sexual immorality. Legitimate, but not necessary. Number six, divorce is legitimate when an unbeliever wishes to divorce the believer. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. And number seven, divorce is forgivable. When sinful, here's the good news. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Quickly, remarriage, number one in general, it's desirable. Number two, possible for a divorced person. Three, possible even for sinfully divorced people through repentance and forgiveness. Four, possible only when all biblical obligations have been met. And five, possible only when parties are prepared to embrace the biblical view of marriage. I know I've given you a lot of information, but in the next passage, we're going to We're going to see the disciples' response in verse 10 when it says, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better off not to marry. We understand what they've said, but we don't necessarily necessarily agree, and we're going to find out the next time why that is. The real question that you should ask yourself is this. Do I believe what the Bible says about marriage? And will I apply it to my life? But let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a lot of material, a lot of difficulty, a lot of questions. Lord, I don't even pretend for a moment that this passage or my statements will in any way clear up every single question, address every single issue. But Lord, I pray that it would address the most important issue and the most important question. And that is, Lord, what is your view of marriage? What do you believe about marriage? Why is it important and why should it be important to me? And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray, we pray, we pray for our marriages. We pray for the men and women who have to make the hard choices and utilize the very real resources to make the choice to honor you in the circumstance that they find themselves in. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who seek to support one another in our commitment to honor you and to obey you in every area of our life. Because we love you. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for Jesus. For the resources that Jesus gives us without which we wouldn't be able to survive mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually. And so, Lord, again, we commit our marriages to you. We commit our hearts to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.